0: For this episode, I did a bunch of research on all their old songs. I hadn't cracked my old Beatles complete book, all the uh, compositions kind of transcribed on guitar. I didn't crack that open in 25 years. And on the first page is a little note to myself saying, to Wes, from Wes, this is my Bible, dated 1995. (laughs) We studied these songs and we made all of their tips and tricks our own. This knowledge should be airborne. Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct podcast, the end of the year special, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is Happy Christmas, war is over versus wonderful Christmas time or John versus Paul. The theme of this show is called Divinity. And the reason why it's called Divinity is because it's a Christmas special and because I believe that the John Paul slash Beatles saga is one of the few times in history where God tipped his cards and showed he could speak directly through two people and their music. And I will attempt during this episode to framework out how the Beatles basically invented a number of different mechanisms that have been reused since over the past 30, 40 years, be it key signature changes, bar phrasing, Chord progressions, the way that they sing, the lyrics they sing about, all of these things will be topics that I attempt to kind of roll up into this show and feature how John and Paul were basically divinely inspired to produce 200 plus songs that can be really studied and categorized as master craftsmanship examples of songwriting hmm. welcome to the show ryan uh oh, hello amen amen to that brother so i want to go and just get happy christmas versus wonderful christmas time i'm going to do a quick little mini episode here and give you some quick stats on the songs so happy christmas comes out end of 1971 but it did not actually start getting played on the radio until the following christmas so it took a whole year before it got into rotation other interesting fact, this did not chart on the Billboard Hot 100 until this year. 2019 was the first time it ever got into the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked mm. at number 42. Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time did not get into the Billboard Hot 100 until December, last December, 2018, one month before John Lennon. It peaked at number 47. So I don't know why the coincidence that both songs just made it inside of the same month into the Billboard Hot 100. 40 years after they were released, 40 years plus after they released, but numbers don't lie. There's something to that. Happy Christmas did not go gold. Paul McCartney's wonderful Christmas time did go gold. Uh, a couple of other stats just to kind of size up John versus Paul. Uh, John Lennon's fortune is estimated to be about $800 million today. Paul McCartney's is about $700 million.
1: He lost some in the, in the divorce, but Paul was alive to do all this investing and
0: I'm just saying they're apples and oranges anyways, because John is missing 40 years of career that Paul has over him. Yet John is still kind of beating him. And the interesting thing is that if you go to the YouTube channel, John Lennon has more subscribers on his YouTube channel Mm. than Paul McCartney does. John had 25 number one singles during his Beatles and solo career. Paul McCartney has 32 number one singles During his Beatles, so so there's some overlap between the two of them, and obviously Paul has had a little bit longer of a career. Paul has sold 100 million singles, and Paul has sold 100 million albums between his Beatles and his solo career. These are the two heavyweights, and the interesting thing is that they all came; they both came out of the same city, Liverpool, and that they grew up side by side, helping each other write. They probably would have both been awesome songwriters, but as history would have it, these two grew up side by side and taught each other to level up every month instead of level up every year. And because of that, through their six-, seven-, eight-year songwriting partnership, they were able to produce so much, and we're going to go through it all. But again, let's just stay on these songs real quick. So, Happy Christmas War is over. The chord sequence, is: it starts in the key of A. It goes to a B binder, hits an E, returns to A. Then for the second part of the verse, because there's two phrases to this verse, it then hops up to the key of D. And it keeps the same chord progression. It goes to E minor, A, back to D. For the chorus, it goes to the key of G. G, A, E minor, G, D, E. And then loops back to the verse and to the key of A. This is John Lennon on full display because he's changing keys, which is what he's always done his entire career. And the interesting thing that I'm going to be showing is that people oftentimes tend to think that, oh, well, they progressed and they got better and better and better. But I will show that on the first album, they were breaking ground on all of the tricks that they used all the way up until Abbey Road. So their first album has almost every single trick in the book already baked in. So by the time these guys reached the limelight in 1963, they were already masters of songwriting craft. They continued to grow. And they continued to reshuffle the card deck, but they had the whole car deck from stardom. Mm. Let's keep in mind, though, they've been together since 1956. So there was a good seven years there of craftsmanship that led up to their getting world famous in 1963. So let me just categorize this song real quick. Happy Christmas, War is Over. It's got a dramatic tone, being very inclusive. It has lyrics such as, I'm just going to take some of the key words. Christmas, done, over, begun, fun, dear one, young, Christmas, Happy New Year, good one, without fear, weak, strong, rich, poor, world, wrong, black, white, yellow, red, stop, fight, old, young. So you can see what John Lennon's doing here. He's using the classic irony trick where he says the opposites to basically kind of come up with something to talk about during his first lyrics. Because as a songwriter, you're always wondering, where do I go with this, right? (laughs) Well, when in doubt, lesson number one in songwriting, always use irony. And this goes for any kind of writing, whether you're writing a book or a film, writing comes down to irony. It's the classic notion of it's not what I expected. Therefore, I find it interesting when you use opposites. So would you
1: give a more thorough definition of uh, irony, though? Pretend for a second that I'm dumb and I don't know.
0: Sure. (laughs) It can be defined by the way, by the action it performs. And irony is the opposite of what you expect. And this is interesting because this is classic John Lennon. He's using 4-4 four, four drumming, but he's using a waltz guitar. So a waltz is 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3. So this is Christmas, 2 3 2, two, two three. And yep. what have you done? There are no drums in the verse, but when they come into in the chorus, the drums are not drumming to a waltz. The drums are instead going 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3, 1-2-3. So the drums are only hitting the backbeat after every... Second bar and fourth bar of the three-four. This is classic John Lennon because many of his songs, "Happiness Is a Warm Gun," being one of the best examples, where they play four-four drumming while the rest of the band is playing three-four time during the "Happiness Is a Warm Gun." When I hold you in my arms, bang bang, shoot you. Ringo is instructed by John to play four-four drumming to give it that confusing feel. Mm -hmm. They got bored in the studio, so they were always going to the next level with, what have we not done? In fact, I think that they ran out of things to do. It's probably the thing that ultimately broke them up. They realized that they had written the book on every songwriting trick and it was time to move on. Maybe. Another thing going on in this song is a descant Melody. I don't know if that's how you pronunciate it or discount, but it's basically the war is over if you want it. So the kids are in the background singing a different melody. John's in the foreground singing. So this is Christmas. When you have two melodies like that going side by side. Counterpoint. First and foremost, it's a counterpoint. The second thing is, is that you can use it to maximum effect if you back one of those lines out, which is what they do at the end of the song. At the end of the song, John stops singing, and you just hear the kids singing, mm-hmm. and they, they sing over the chords. The outro is in the key of A, just like first verse, and the song ends with the kids singing when they go up to the key of D, which is what gives it kind of a longing feeling. It doesn't sound cheerful. It almost sounds remorseful, and that's because of what he's doing with key signature, moving to D, and pulling out his vocal and allowing it just to be the counterpoint melody to sing out the rest War is over. They use mandolin strumming on this song, which is an interesting instrument, kind of helps to drive the tune. This is on the Wikipedia page. The song is based on the skewball ballad, which is some kind of a traditional song. I think the earliest known publishing was 1784. It's about a horse. But if you listen to the song Skewball, which was done by Peter, Paul and Mary in the early 60s, It doesn't sound at all like the song. It has the same chords as far as A, B minor, E, A. It does not go up to the key of D. It does not go to the key of G. It just repeats A, B minor, E, A. So all they have in common are the same chords. But for some reason, it's commonly accepted that John Lennon based this song off of the blueprint of Scooball. That seems unfair. It seems very unfair. Um, Almost as unfair as Uptown Funk You Up. Episode five, I believe. Let me go to the other side of the fence. Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time starts in the key of B, ends in the key of B, on the chord of B the entire time. Where it tends to get off its butt and start to move around is simply having a wonderful Christmas time. This is classic Paul McCartney. He uses this same trick in Blackbird, and he also uses it in Yesterday, where he changes the chord on every single word. Yeah. He moves around going C minor, F sharp seventh, D sharp minor seventh, G sharp minor ninth, E major seventh, A nine, back to B. Paul McCartney is a music aficionado, or really almost kind of like a classically trained composer without the training. He just simply understood how. All the notes could be used. He was always writing on piano. So it was very easy for him to kind of find these interesting chord patterns. And then he'd figure out a way to Paul McCartney it into being a number one hit. Most of the time, this song, again, took 40 years, the chart to number 47. (laughs) Having said that, this song makes $400,000 a year. Right. Perpetually. That's a nice little income. You know, I mean, I'll take it. I'll take 400000 a year for doing nothing. This song will make more money than I make my entire lifetime. <laughs> this song does some interesting stuff with the bars and the phrasing. So it's a 10 bar, middle eight, when they go into the, the choir of children sing their song. And because he doesn't sing anymore. And he just allows the uh, guitar lead to fill the air. That's what produces that extra two bars. Now I'm going to highlight a lot of this eight bar, 10 bar, 12 bar stuff. I brought it up on uh, last week's episode with Ellen John, the one, but it's throughout all of the Beatles music. I would say that the Beatles music is characterized first and foremost by how many bars they put in their verses, how many bars they put in their chorus, because ultimately the way that you write bars into your music de- determines whether your songs are thrifty and they kind of surprise you, which Beatles music tends to do, versus just being very ordinary, which 99% of other songwriters are is, is what they accomplish. They do four, four, eight bars, 16 bar music, and it feels very cookie cutter-ish. Beatles music never feels cookie cutterish because they're always playing with the bar phrasing.
1: Okay, so if it's not traditional, then what is it an odd an odd number of bars
0: or Yeah, they're constantly using 2 bars, 3 bars, 4 bars, 5 bars, 6 bars, 7 bars. I got about 8 different examples that I'll bring up. You'll you'll see how they use it all over the place. In fact, you'll never listen to Beatles music the same way again because you'll always be counting the bars. I might not. Okay. Another thing that Wonderful Christmas Time is taking advantage of with Paul McCartney's kind of music aficionado background. He's playing triplets on the drums. He's playing all the instruments on the record. Not that – I mean, Paul McCartney's played all the instruments on many of his songs that were far more advanced than this song. It's actually his first single after he retired the band Wings. Pretty cool stuff going on in the bass. Uh, Lots of little, what I call, obla-di-obla-da elements. Paul likes to throw on a lot of improvisation in his records to make it feel like a party. John Lennon didn't do it as much. The nature of trying to keep the record lively. Paul McCartney was good at that. I'm going to stop there. So now we're going to talk about all of their other songs, and we'll begin to see how these two guys brought this stuff to the table throughout their career on every single album. I'm going to start out first with kind of the top 10 most streamed songs on uh, Spotify. Then I'm going to go to their early career and show how this stuff was always present. But it just so happens that their most streamed songs online tend to be from their um, last couple of albums. So the n- number one stream song is Let It Be. This is actually very standard in terms of it's, it's only eight bars. And it's a kind of a box, C, G, A minor, F on the verse. And the chorus is A minor, C, F, C. CGFC. So here's the interesting thing about Let It Be. They put the verse on the major and they made the chorus into a minor. Hmm. Most bands do the exact opposite. It's a minor on the verse, just like with one last week. right? And in the chorus, they go to the major. The Beatles oftentimes do it the exact opposite. Do you have uh, other examples? On the first album, or actually the second album, it won't be long. So if you think about the verse every day here am I sitting all on my own. It won't be long. That's where they go to the uh the minor. Minor. Okay. But they do it all over the place. And I think we actually did it in our writing a lot because I think I figured out that the Beatles did that. If I did it, it was by accident. Hey Jude, the second most streamed song. The Beatles' most streamed songs tend to be some of their most standard songs because I think audiences like eight bars, not necessarily the seven bar stuff. Not to say that you can necessarily perceive it as a layman, but it does tend to make the record less danceable when it's got a seven, eight bar instead of an eight, eight phrasing. For instance, Hey Jude is eight bar, but in its pre-chorus transition where it says, Anytime you feel the pain, that's an orphan bar. So that's one bar, four beats, transitioning between the verses and the chorus. The chorus goes back to being eight bar.
1: Isn't that sort of engineering, though? I need to get from A to,
0: to C, so we fill it in with B. But other bands don't do it. Bohemian Rhapsody does this all over the place. But if you listen to other Queen songs, they tend to be eight bars. If anyone's going to be doing it, it would be Queen because they were very eccentric in how they wrote songs, but they're still eight bars except for Bohemian Rhapsody. Beatles, every song has orphan bars and three bars and five bars. I'd say nine nine out of 10 songs have it. And it's because they were thrifty and they, that's how they kept you guessing and made it feel alive. Right, Hey Jude also invented the uh the o's or in this case the na 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 we were talking about this on episode two i think we were wondering who invented it you said ar- arcade uh arcade fire <laughs> <on>. beatles invented <laughs> it hold on. hold on a
1: minute <laughs> i don't like the misquotes here i never said that arcade fire invented <laughs> o's in 2007 or, or 2004 or whatever <laughs> Two thousand three. My point was the repopularized as as the front and center focal point of the song. They brought that back. O's have been around since the dawn of singing. You know. Right. Right.
0: Absolutely. Um, It's
1: how you use them, and
0: the na 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 is actually. That's probably a novelty. The other interesting thing to consider is that when when Paul McCartney hits that final note where he goes, make it better, 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 better. Yeah. He's, hitting, he's hitting a high F. It's actually the highest note he hits in his career. Right. W- which is fitting because – and that's a high note for anyone to hit. It's one of the highest notes anyone's ever hit in music without going to a falsetto. I mean, you could argue it's a falsetto, but it's kind of a – Diaphragm. Yeah, it's a creature. It's, it's a creature. Who knows what it is? <laughs> a hybrid. Hey Jude on the final verse, classic Beatles trick. Mm. They make that last verse meaningful by bringing on John Lennon's harmony uh, mm. for the Hey Jude, don't make it bad. It works very effectively, not just because it's these two songwriters who work closely together, but it works for anyone's song when you're layering. Again, when I listen to music today, I so rarely hear layering where it progresses, where the first verse is here and then the third verse is heavily layered. It just doesn't happen anymore and I don't understand why it's become a lost art to layer. Next song, Come Together. So this is John Lennon, Uh, it's got a two bar chorus. Come together, right now, over me, two bars. That's very rare to get a two bar chorus. And Ringo, again, is always bringing his own brand of songwriting through the use of his drums. To me, the best example of that is on Strawberry Fields or A Day in the Life, where those little drum fills are very poetic. It's almost like he's talking with his little drum fills uh, around John Lennon's lyrics. I think that Come Together invented the iconic scat lyric that Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, basically made his brand. And I don't think it's also a coincidence that steven tyler covered come together when they uh, when that rudels movie came out uh Mm. that made fun of the beatles and the aerosmith was in it so again chalk that up to john lennon inventing aerosmith in my life john lennon this is the fourth most most commonly streamed song this is classic eight bar phrasing it does have the cool piano kind of bach influence which beatles were always quick to bring to the forefront this old classical music they kind of reincorporated it Uh, As I mentioned on a previous episode, I think episode two, they went from major to minor. And uh, at the time when I brought this up in a previous episode, I was trying to think, had anyone done it before that major to minor? As far as I can tell, I went back and studied the Beatles songs. The first Beatles song to do it is actually on the same album, Rubber Soul. So in my life was one of the first to do it. It was tied for first with You Won't See Me. Uh, It's the middle eight where they uh, go from D to D minor. But obviously, In My Life is a far more better known song. So we got to give it to In My Life that it was the first to use major to minor. And I still can't find that sequence in any other song before the Beatles used it. Yesterday, the fifth most streamed song, it's got a two bar chorus, just like Come Together does. It was kind of famous for using strings, although I think Rolling Stones, as I mentioned to you before, they use strings. On a, it is the evening of the day. And their 1964 song, they use strings, but for whatever reason, they don't get credit. Yesterday does.
1: What are you considering the chorus to Yesterday that has two
0: bars? I consider that song to have a, a versaurus yep. and, and a middle eight. I think I call them verse refrains, but a versaurus sounds better. Okay, so let's go over the song real quick. Yesterday. Yep. All my troubles seem so far away Now it seems as though they're here to stay That's the third uh phrase Oh I believe in yesterday That's the two bar chorus Oh I <laughs> no, believe in yesterday no. it, It's a verse chorus I you feel know, like you just want to have a chorus so bad So that you're going to call
1: that <laughs> the chorus The whole thing is one part You know we wrote it all together
0: I agree with you Now having said that Still look at the phrasing So it's actually a five bar verse mm-hmm. Try to dance to that Oh I believe in yesterday There's obvious something weird going on there right yeah it also showcases paul mccartney's rapid chord sweeping that we see in wonderful christmas time and that leads us into the uh sixth most popular beatles stream song blackbird Surprisingly, I think it's only because it was featured in a number of different movies that kind of uh, popularized it again. But Blackford has two four timing, three four timing, four four timing, mostly because it's on a guitar and you don't have to worry about, you know, messy drum parts. It's got one bar phrases like uh, into the light of a dark black night. That's a typical two four measure where he's kind of quickly cutting into the song and then taking it back to four four timing. Seventh most stream song of Beatles is All You Need Is Love. It's got a three bar intro. It's got four, four timing with alternating three, four timing. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. It also has the escalating background singing where they go, love, 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 love. It's the same trick that John Lennon uses later on Happy Christmas, War is Over, where he escalates, war is over. He moves it up a key, whereas in All You Need is Love, they're not moving it up a key. They're instead just moving it up. I think it's from a third to a fifth harmony. But it's obviously something that the Beatles and they they were using it far before All You Need is Love when they were doing their intricate harmonizing on their first couple of albums. But again, I'm just trying to highlight some of the different tricks that they're using throughout all of this. Help is the eighth most streamed song. The interesting thing about Help is that they they open up with the help, I need somebody help, not just anybody. It's opening on the chorus, but they're not singing the chorus. They invent a whole melody. You don't ever hear that again for the rest of the song.
1: Really? Yeah. I guess that never occurred to me. That's the only time you hear that
0: is the intro. Because the rest of it is, help me if you can, I'm feeling down. The other part, the notable part of this is that John Lennon liked to use falsetto a lot. He liked to just jump into it for a second and then get out of it, which Brian Wilson was using falsetto all the time, but he- Never jumped into falsetto and then jumped out. John Lennon made that a brand. So when he goes, won't you please, please help me? Or won't you please, please me? He, he was using that falsetto back into the uh, diaphragm voice since the first record.
1: Do you think that that's just a consequence of writing quality melodies
0: that- Yeah, that go all over. Can't find a key to set it in where they're all chest voice. That and the fact that I think he was good at it, mm-hmm. he was always able to slip into that falsetto so effortlessly. A pretty good talent because not everyone can do it. Even if you're a great singer, you cannot necessarily slip into the falsetto that easily. One other thing to consider that Help introduced was the ending, which is what I also call an Obladi ending, where you go to the minor. So with Obladi, it's, if you want some fun, take Obladi, Blada. Well, Help does it first by going, help me, help me, you. It's doing the same thing with the chords where instead of hitting the A, it's going to the uh, the brother chord or the sister chord, the minor, which would be F sharp minor to an A. It's a little trick that you can use to append to the end a little bit of um, danger. Uh, ninth most dream song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Now, here's something that you probably have never considered. I Want to Hold Your Hand opens up with the middle eight that little da 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 that's actually the middle eight if you think of how they get out of the middle eight and when i touch you i feel happy inside it's such a feeling that my love i get high that's the intro i get high can't hide i've listened to it they are not saying can't hide okay because you got to pronunciate those words. It's, I can't, hi. I mean, they never admitted to it, but okay. Tenth most dream song is yeah, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleanor Rigby, surprisingly, because this is one of their weird ones. This has got a classic five bar verse. This is what five bar sounds like. Eleanor Rigby, one, lives in the at the death of the 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 name, lives in a dream. <laughs> That's the fifth bar. This song's also interesting to note because it's all basically holding on E minor. He only goes to the C when he absolutely has to break out of the monotones. Lives in a dream. That's the C.
1: Did you see the movie yesterday? You reminded me of him not knowing any of the lyrics. (laughs) No
0: one knows the lyrics. And one thing that the Beatles always did well, especially Paul McCartney, is Paul McCartney could tell a freaking story like nobody else in rock music. Think about Paperback Writer. That whole song's about a guy writing a book on his knee, on an airplane. He can't get any sleep. Paul McCartney could just spin a little tail, and it was effortless. And that's what Eleanor Rigby is. It comes across as um, like a children's story. It strikes into the chorus with the existential, I look at all the lonely people. Are you confusing a paperback writer –
1: with back in the USSR I I mean, mean, are, you, are you combining them? I'm combining
0: them I'm combining all the, them.
1: All the way the paperback was on my knee or really? the paper bag.
0: Actually, I've never really known. Now before I move on to their first albums where they really develop all these songwriting tricks, those top 10 singles, as I wrote them down, I was like, I wonder how many of these are Paul songs and how many are Johns and of course they're tied. Isn't that so Beatles? Is that oh, yeah. the top top ten most stream songs come out half and half with Paul and John? That's meant to be. It's Divinity, man. You when you listen to Beatles music, you're hearing the like the pen of God come into this world. You can deconstruct Beatles songs all day long. What I'm attempting to do here, which is to rifle through all their catalog, is quite ambitious in of itself, but I'm gonna try to do it. I got about twenty songs to cover. <laughs> I feel like you should save some
1: for uh, other podcasts.
0: No, no, it's good, man. We got to do it like this because this is going to be the end of the year special. I'm going to say I was able to rifle through 30 Beatles songs <laughs> and capture all the tricks in one podcast. All right. All right. Here we go. Ask Me Why. Crap song. It's on the first album. It's got lots of cool chords to it, but I'm not going to give it the credit for the cool chords. Look at these chords. E, G sharp minor. F-sharp minor, E, G-sharp seventh, so it goes to a major there, then goes to a C-sharp minor. Then from C-sharp minor hits an A minor, which is hard to do. And then goes back to A. The problem is, is that as we've always discussed, I don't care if it has cool chords. If it sounds weird, you did not earn it. I agree. And Ask Me Why does not earn it. The only reason why I bother bringing that up is because it's interesting to see how Beatles were so infatuated with cool chords right on the first album. P.S. I Love You does do it effectively, uses cool chords. It's a 10-bar verse. It's a D, E minor, D, A... B minor, A, all that's pretty standard, and then he goes up a half semitone to B flat on the PS I love you. For his ability to go up from an A to a B flat and hit that PS I love you, he manages to walk a fine line of it sounding crooked, but also sounding conventional. So he's able to bridge the gap. And this is what the Beatles made an entire career of doing. They made weird stuff sound conventional all the time. And it's hard to do. Let's move up to do you want to know a secret? Starts out with you'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. Those are cool chords, but it's a cool intro and it works well. And they had George Harrison sing it, but he didn't write it. This intro is never reused in the song, the chords or the, the, the melody. When they do go into the verse, it's E, G-sharp minor, G minor, F-sharp minor, B. And then they alternate every once in a while and go E, G-sharp minor, G minor, F-sharp minor to C. That's a six semitone shift. To go from an F-sharp to a C is very hard to do without it sounding incredibly out of place. And that's when they go, listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, closer. That's the weird six semitone shift from an F sharp up to a C. Please, please me. And it won't be long. Both of these songs make use of what John Lennon always liked to use, which was double entendre. It won't be long, just like George Harrison's Please Don't Be Long these guys always had a little bit of a sub- subversive subtext to their music it would come out later you know with the white album when they kind of took the mask off and weren't afraid to put nude pictures of themselves in the in the sleeve but four or five years earlier with this first album, it was already there. These guys that come from Hamburg, they were young ruffians and they were always using these little double entendres. As I discussed before, It Won't Be Long has a minor chorus with a major verse. But again, you can find this throughout their catalog. I just didn't bother going down and making a list of them all. They have three bar and four bar alternating verses. So every day, da, 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 Here I am, I standing all on my own, da. So if you notice, they play the riff twice on the second time and the riff only once on the first time after he's done singing. That's how they get the three bar in the first verse and the four bar in the second verse. That's how the Beatles are constantly making you guess what? Are we going right back in or are we going to hang out here for a minute? Mm -hmm. The chorus is also six bars into that song. And it also has a really cool middle eight. Since you left me, you, I'm so alone. Now I'm coming, you're coming on home. That's E, D sharp augmented, D6, C sharp seven, and then... Pretty standard box after that. But again, the Beatles were already pulling down semitone shifts. This is second album, but but they were pulling down semitone shifts, four semitone shifts in a row, and it sounds good. It doesn't sound weird. It sounds a little weird, because you can't make four semitone shifts not sound weird, just like Bohemian Rhapsody sounds a little weird, but they, they still make it work at the beginning. Well, It Won't Be Long was doing something very similar to what Bohemian Rhapsody was doing back in 1963, 11 years earlier. All my loving, this is classic Paul McCartney with a walking bass line, classic John Lennon with cool triplet guitar strumming. That triplet guitar strumming, go try it. It's very difficult to do. And I can't think of any other pop group that had triplet guitar strumming, which is that really fast alternating up and down and keep appropriate time so it doesn't sound like you're just uh, out of time. Things we said today was the first time that they used a minor to major key change. A minor to E, A minor to E. And then he hits the A major where he says, me, I'm just a lucky guy. (laughs) And you can kind of tell he's making Uh, it into a major. Yeah.
1: That's, that's always been one of the rougher transitions on any Beatles song.
0: I, I, I totally agree, but it was early in the career. And I'm just trying to make the point that John and Paul were thinking about this stuff from the word go.
1: Yeah.
0: Should have known better. Hard Day's night, their third album, uh, it's just a basically a ten bar verse, and again, if you listen to the song, you'll be able to realize how they're kind of able to make it f- into a ten bar verse by throwing in harmonica real quick. Wow, 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 I should have known better. That was their way of just kind of rushing you through the song by cutting two bars, and it it always works. When in doubt, songwriter lesson: play around with the bar phrasing because you might just make the song feel like you're on a roller coaster instead of in a car. Mm-hmm. If I fell, if I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? I'm not going to give this song too much credit because I think it sounds weird and I'm not. Yeah, if it sounds weird, you didn't earn it. But um, they have all kinds of key changes in that intro. And that's from the Hard Age Night album. So we have to skip uh, Beatles for Sale. There's nothing too cool going on in Beatles for Sale. That's their most common, ordinary 4-4 album, mostly because they were influenced by folk music and they were trying to get away from being weird. But by help, they were back at it with you're going to lose that girl. It's a verse in the key of E. The middle eight is in the key of G. I'll make a point. And it ends on F, but they have to make it back to the verse, which is in the key of E. So they just slide down from F to E. And it sounds wonderful, actually. But they're doing something that should not work. And they just do it because they have to do it. They didn't want to move it up a key. So it slides from F down to E. Ticket to ride. When they say, she's got a ticket to ride. John Lennon's singing a minor on a major chord. So he's singing a G, but the chord they're playing is an E major, which has a G sharp. Right. which is very similar to Strawberry Fields where he sings one dissonant note up. from. He sings a G sharp over a G, which shouldn't work, but it has a certain razor sharp edge to it if you can do it well, which is why they sing, she's got to take it to ride. The chord is E and he sings the G. He sings the G, yeah. which is the minor. Well,
1: because that would be very, uh, you know, if you were to play a blues pentatonic over an E major chord, you know, imagine you're playing E major – or E7 and then A7 and B7, that set that sequence. So it's kinda like right. he's singing like a like a like a guitar line would play. You know? Right. That bluesy influence right. on the on the melody. Indeed. And it creates tension.
0: And the, the fact is, if you play that as an E minor, it will not sound like the song. You have to play it as an E major on the guitar for it to actually sound yeah. right. Yeah, that's interesting. It's only love. Often overlooked. It's only love and that is all why should I feel the way I do? So here's the chords, C, E minor, B flat, Mm -hmm. F, G, G augmented. Pre-chorus, F, G, C, A minor, chorus, B flat, G, C, A minor, B flat, G, F, G. It's what I would call a pop ballad. John was able to make those chords just walk all over the place because he's singing an intuitive melody. And I think ultimately the Beatles wrote intuitive melodies. They didn't have to work too hard on constructing them. They just let them flow. That goes back to the divinity thing. When you listen to many songwriters, how they uh, describe writing a song, they say, I just pulled it out of the air. There's something to that. Being songwriters ourselves, I know that I'm always pulling songs out of the air or from some kind of a frequency and it's just there. And I think that the Beatles just had a really High powered radio signal. They are able to pick up stuff and and so prolifically and write all of this down within five, six, seven years. Nowhere, man. It was on Rubber Soul, but it could have been on help because it has the same pop ballad chords. Mm. If you look at help, it's a bunch of boxes, but they're complicated boxes. Like with uh, It's Only Love that I was just talking about. Instead of using only four chords, they might use eight chords or even 12 chord different boxes back to back to back for the song. And that's what Nowhere Man is. It's two different boxes. He goes E, B, A, E, then goes up to F sharp minor, A minor, E. And they use them all over Help. They don't use them that much on Rubber Soul. So Nowhere Man feels like a holdover from Help. Here, There, and Everywhere is on revolver, um, opens up with a 9 8 and a 7 8 time signature to lead a better life. I need my love to be here. By this time, Paul McCartney was well on his way to doing whatever the heck he wanted to with music. He was beginning to experiment wildly. The cool thing about Here, There, and Everywhere is uh, it does a G, A minor, B minor, C, and then an F sharp minor. So again, to go from a C to an F-sharp minor is very difficult to do. And he makes it sound unpleasant, but it feels conventional in the song. Here making each day of the year, each one believing that love never dies, (laughs) watching her eyes. That's the C and F-sharp minor uh, chord progression. And then the middle four... Hear me right. Not a middle eight, not a middle 16, just a middle four, which is so rare because the Beatles are extremely thrifty that they don't want to play two whole phrases. I want her everywhere. And if she's beside me, I know I need never care. But to love her is to need her everywhere. That's only four bars. But in that four bars, he manages to fit in like 10 chords so it's B-flat, G-minor, C-minor, D7, G-minor, G-minor, C-minor, D7, G. Right. And of course, Melody is walking up and down mountains and all of that happens within like Eight seconds.
1: <laughs> they back a lot in. This song um, has the uh, distinguished honor. At one point, Lennon said, I think it was his favorite McCartney song.
0: Ah, wow. Never heard that. But it uh... always stuck out to
1: me as an interesting comment. It's so McCartney and it's so something that Lennon just, it probably was just a little beyond Lennon's scope. Yes. Melodically and the softness to it. And I think he actually, instead of ragging on it, I think he actually appreciated it that's something i couldn't have done.
0: Yeah, and it has cool chords to it and Lennon was always an admirer of cool chords. Yeah. Uh Happiness is a Warm Gun will be the final song i talk about in this little anthology of comparisons. Happiness is a Warm Gun was Bohemian Rhapsody's uh mother. <laughs> I was tempted to say, you know what, maybe Good Vibrations is the mother of these two, but it isn't because Good Vibrations is a weird song and does lots of cool stuff, but Good Vibrations is still just a standard verse chorus verse chorus middle eight and then another middle eight and then a verse chorus. Happiness is a warm gun is a true rhapsody and that it does not repeat as an intro, as two verses, got the I need a fix because I'm going down middle eight, middle 16, if we want to call it that. Then it has the uh, ultimate uh, crescendo. Happiness is a warm gun, bang, bang, shoot you. It is a mini Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously not on the scale of Bohemian Rhapsody. In a nutshell, everything I just described, and this is hard. The Beatles got 200 songs, and I think every single song, even the bad ones, are doing cool stuff. Did you not just do 200 songs? That's did. I think it was closer to 20. <laughs> okay. So I, I gave a 10% sample. Oh, my bad. But I want to do it justice because, you know, me and you, we've always been on the same page about this. I mean, we met over our appreciation for the Beatles music. True. I came to you as a songwriter, you were not yet a songwriter. And I think you were kind of inspired. And I kind of gave up songwriting. And when I came back to it a year, well, maybe six months later, the next school year, and I saw that you had written songs, you were the first person I'd ever seen. And I'd been around lots of people, but you're the first one I'd saw using full minor and major. Like everyone else was writing power chords. You wrote in minor and major. And that's what impressed me most about you. I hadn't even realized that I was the only one writing a minor major until I saw you writing in that style. And then I realized that uh, your inspiration had come from the Beatles. And then I started realizing, well, we have essentially a team now to study everything that the Beatles had done and try to make it our own. And that's all our entire project as a band was. For this episode, I did a bunch of research on all their old songs. I hadn't cracked my old Beatles complete book, all the... uh, compositions kind of transcribed on guitar. I didn't crack that open in 25 years. And on the first page is a little note to myself saying, to Wes, from Wes, this is my Bible, dated 1995. (laughs) We studied these songs and we made all of their tips and tricks our own. This knowledge should be airborne. So that's the reason why I wanted to go through 10% of their portfolio and kind of showcase that their earliest records, had some of their most profound moments that they ever captured in terms of songwriting architecture.
1: Well, there's no, there's no end to the learning. I mean, even today, for some reason, the the amount of bars per per verse or a chorus, it's just not something I've ever personally focused on. I I've, I've focus more on melody, chords. Oh, does it go intro, verse, chorus? Is there a different outro? Whatever. Those things are more appealing to me. I I just, I don't know. Something about counting bars is very math. And uh, now that you've brought it up, I'm going, wow, okay, that is one more element that I kind of neglected. I kind of want to go back through the book and look at them all now and start counting.
0: And the thing is, our music was pretty complicated chord-wise, but we did not have complicated bar phrasing because it's hard to do and to do it well. Right, that's what I'm thinking. Let me just put a little bow tie in all this. So if Lennon was the guy who created the abrasive music, McCartney was his yang to his yin who created the easy listening music. And if you look at their solo careers, which are really not that long, despite the fact that people tend to think of Paul McCartney as having a 40-year solo career. Both of them had about a three-year solo career, 70, 71, 72, and 73, or let's go to 74. After that, they both went a little limp-wristed. They both had you know, little comeback records, Double Fantasy or Paul McCartney had various comeback. But the point is, is that their concentrated solo career was about three or four years long. And in that period of time, Lennon launched Adult Contemporary, whereas Paul McCartney launched kind of an easy listening Eagles type of music vibe. I think the Eagles took it and ran with it, but I think McCartney was the father of easy listening. I think ultimately music is something that, unlike any other medium. In this life, you know, be it film or reading or listening to a speaking engagement, music can actually like penetrate in seconds and take you to a different place, not just to help you to escape, but it can also help you to learn and take on a lesson. And a lot of these songs that these guys created influenced the world. Even a song like I Want to Hold Your Hand, that song had a certain power. A song like that, I think, helped America bounce back from the JFK assassination. When we talk about music, we're not just talking about entertainment. This is something that is infused with like the soul and the human experience and ultimately divinity. I know that I mentioned last week we were going to do two Christmas episodes, but I'm thinking... <laughs> We're going to leave this as the end of the year special <laughs> doing these weekly podcasts as a way of like pulling you into a, um, uh, a hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. So, so we'll take some time off, but uh, I'll tell you what I was thinking about doing. It probably wouldn't have gone over so well, but I wanted to do Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You because it's got some cool chords going on it and some other elements. It's one of the biggest Christmas records. And I want to contrast that with Oh Holy Night. Specifically, Mariah Carey's version, although they're all kind of the same, but her version has a very good high note. And I think Oh Holy Night is one of the best Christmas songs. It's not the best Christmas songs written 150 years ago. It stands the test of time. It's got cool chords even for a song written 150 years ago. And Mariah Carey does the definitive version on the same album that she released, which I think is the definitive Christmas album. But that's really all I have to say about that. So there's a quick mini episode on what I wanted to do with those two songs. Any other points you'd like to make before we sign off for the year 2019? The McCartney one, it, it highlighted the difference between the two because it just sounded like a
1: little ditty that he came up with. And he just probably sang that line, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. And right. he just liked those little things. He just liked making little bits of music, whereas Lennon would have probably thought it's a waste of time. For him, he had to include a message of peace and anti-Vietnam, You know, or it's not worth his time. It's just, the two, right. it's just the two different personalities. And I, I feel like uh, we all sort of have a bit of both of them in us. Yeah. Which one do we gravitate more towards? People that think they're cooler than everybody else are, are going to act like they have more Lennon in them than McCartney. <laughs> but I'm okay embracing that there's little stuff you come up with that are stupid little songs. They're harmless if you like doing that kind of thing.
0: Then you should write them out and embrace your inner McCartney. Third best selling song of all time is uh, "In the Summertime" when the weather is hot. You can stretch your head up and touch the sky. That, that's something that the guy wrote in five seconds. Right? There's nothing more to that song. And just to quickly tie it to John Lennon, um, Whatever Gets You Through the Night was one of his comeback songs after kind of having a stretch of no singles that were charting. And Whatever Gets You Through the Night, Elton John kind of came up to him. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, "Ah, all my songs stink. And Elton said, play me one of them. And he played him Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And Elton John was like, we're going to make this a number one hit. So I'm trying to say that you never know what you're sitting on. It takes a lot of inertia and stamina to kind of stay on the ball with promoting yourself and your music. It's very easy to walk away from a song that could very well be the one song that everyone likes and that helps to get traction. So whatever gets you through the night is a great song. But Lennon was like, nah, this is, uh, this is dying on the vine until Elton John came along. So you need a tribe. You need people to propel you and tell you, yeah, this song sucks right. or keep working. <laughs> this is a good song. And that's like the entire point of this entire project. Echo Spire is supposed to be a website for attracting songwriters to get nerdy to get sophisticated about analyzing and deconstructing other songwriter stuff Mm -hmm. and to welcome the same feedback on their material to basically create a songwriting staff worldwide that is sophisticated and bring great songs, not just great music, because the music can be the layering of the production, but the underlying core elements of great songwriting, which is lyrics, chord structure, bar phrasing, these kind of engineering elements. So we will see if Echo Spire can uh, get a heartbeat And uh, in 2020, get released. All right. All right. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we're signing off. All right. See you next year. See you next year.